0: Announcing Mind Over Murder, a new true crime podcast. You're listening to the Mind Over Murder podcast. My name is Bill Thomas. I'm a writer, consulting producer, and now podcaster. I am now trying to use my experience as the brother of a murder victim to help other victims of violent crime. I'm working on a book on the unsolved Colonial Parkway murders, and I'm the co-administrator of the Colonial Parkway Murders Facebook group together with Kristen Dilley. My name is Kristen Dilley. I'm a writer, a researcher, a teacher, and a victim's advocate, as well as the social media manager and co-administrator for the Colonial Parkway Murders Facebook page with my partner in crime, Bill Thomas. Join us each week as we explore new true crime cases, as well as introduce you to experts from a variety of fields in the true crime space. You're listening to the Mind Over Murder podcast, available on your favorite podcast platform. Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. In this week's episode, we're talking about the disappearance of Marilyn Renee Nicole McCown, also known as Nikki McCown which is how I will refer to her. Sunday, July 22nd, 2001. It was a normal day for Nikki. The 28-year-old mother lived in Richmond, Indiana with her fiancé, Robert Bobby Webster, and she was close with her large loving family. That afternoon, Nikki went to the local laundromat to do laundry, and she didn't return home. She would never be seen or heard from again. Nikki was born January 6, 1973, in Richmond, Indiana, to Harvey, Bud, Ellsworth, and Barbara McCown. Not a lot of information is available about her parents, but her father was a veteran of the Korean War and worked for Inland Manufacturing in Dayton, Ohio, and another manufacturing company called Wayne Works in Richmond. Nikki was the youngest of ten siblings, but she was the biggest daredevil and most precocious of all of them. The McCown family told Unsolved Mysteries that Nikki was someone who would try anything. Nikki's mother, Barbara, described her as a perfectionist, a sports lover, and a very gifted student. Her brother, Emmett, described her as a sophisticated tomboy to the Palladium Item newspaper, explaining that she would climb trees but make sure that her shirt stayed clean. She was also described as loving brand-name clothes and Lifetime movies. In 1994, Nikki got a job at the Montgomery Education and Pre-Release Center in Dayton, Ohio as an accounting clerk, where she worked until her disappearance in 2001. At the time she went missing, Nikki was also a student at Sinclair Community College. She dreamt of someday becoming a U.S. Marshal and working in law enforcement. Nikki had a nine-year-old daughter named Peyton, who she adored. Nikki and Peyton's dad were no longer together, but they had a good parenting relationship. After her split from Peyton's father, Nikki was able to find love again with a man named Bobby Webster, who she became engaged to. Their wedding was planned for mid-August, 2001, and it was going to have a rainbow theme. Nikki had some health issues. She'd been diagnosed with Graves' disease. If you aren't familiar with it, Graves is an immune system disorder that causes your thyroid hormones to be overproduced. It can affect anyone, but it is most common in women under the age of 40, two characteristics that Nikki met. And there are a lot of symptoms of Graves disease. It isn't clear what Nikki experienced, but the disease appears to be treatable with medication that reduces the amount of thyroid hormones produced. In order to quell symptoms of the disease, Nikki took medication regularly. On the morning of July 22, 2001, Nikki went to church and pre-marriage counseling with her fiancé, Bobby. Then she went to the Richmond Coin Laundry, and Bobby went to a tuxedo fitting for a groomsman and stopped to pick up the wedding ring for Nikki from a jewelry store. The couple had plans later in the day to address envelopes for their wedding invitations. Nikki would leave the laundromat while her clothes were still cleaning to stop by her mom's house. While there, she told her mom that two men had been harassing her at the laundromat. Nikki was upset about the harassment, but her mom told Unsolved Mysteries that she was not worried about it. She said that men often hit on Nikki because she was so pretty. Nikki did leave her mother's house and return to the laundromat to get her clothes, but she would never be seen alive again. When Bobby returned to the apartment he and Nikki shared, she was not there. After reaching out to friends and family, he realized that no one had seen Nikki after she left her mother's house, so he called the Richmond Police Department. Bobby told Unsolved Mysteries that filling out the missing persons report was very difficult. Quote, Because a situation like this you just see happening on, like, a TV movie or something, you never really think in your wildest imagination you'd be in that situation until it really happens. And it's really confusing, really, he said. The Richmond Police Department wouldn't normally investigate a disappearance until 24 hours after the person goes missing. However, because Nikki's disappearance was deemed so out of character, the investigation started right away. The RPD also worked with police departments in Ohio because Nikki had connections there due to her job. Investigators did not have a lot to go off of in Nikki's disappearance, but they looked into every lead they got. Investigators started by looking into the two men that Nikki told her mom were harassing her at the laundromat. They thought that maybe Nikki had been abducted when she returned to finish her laundry. Investigators tracked down surveillance footage, and on the footage, they saw Nikki go to the nearby Village Pantry store at 2.17 p.m. to get changed to do her laundry. She was seen again on footage around 3 p.m. putting her laundry into Bobby's gray 1990 GMC Jimmy 4x4 and then driving away. She was wearing a bright pink and purple floral top, dark-colored shorts, diamond earrings, and a white-gold bracelet. On the surveillance footage, Nikki looked normal and didn't seem to be in any type of distress. Detective Roger Redmond of the Richmond Police Department told 13 Investigates, quote, When she's leaving the facility there, I can tell she's under no duress whatsoever. I can probably give you a 100% surety she was not taken from the laundromat. Sergeant Brad Burner told the Dayton Daily News that no foul play was initially suspected, but the longer that Nikki was gone, the more suspicious the disappearance looked and the more likely foul play became. As days passed and there was no sign of Nikki, detectives began to look into her finances and home life. No money had been removed from her bank account since her disappearance, and she had not contacted her family. Most importantly, she had not reached out to her daughter or her fiancé. Nikki's disappearance was puzzling because she was described as being extremely friendly and having no known enemies. She just didn't seem like the type of person who would vanish. Her family did not believe that she would have gone missing on purpose, especially with her wedding coming up. Nikki's sister Michelle told Unsolved Mysteries that Nikki put a lot of time and money into the wedding. She wanted everything to be perfect. Exactly one week after Nikki's disappearance, investigators returned to the Richmond Coin Laundry with the hopes of finding witnesses who regularly did their laundry between 1 and 3 p.m. on Sundays. Nikki often did her laundry at Richmond Coin Laundry on Sunday afternoon with a cousin. On the 22nd, however, Her cousin was busy, and Nikki was at the laundromat by herself. A few people reported seeing her that day, but they didn't provide any information that was helpful to the investigation. A lot of people called in tips, but none of the tips or leads panned out. A psychic gave information to investigators, and a relative of Nikki's who reported seeing a car in Indianapolis that looked like the gray GMC that was still missing. But all of these leads went nowhere. The missing car, the gray Jimmy, was a point of interest for investigators. Local police brought in the Indiana State Police to search for Nikki and the vehicle. They flew through the area in a helicopter looking for the car but couldn't find it. A ground search was also conducted in early August by volunteer groups, but they had no results. Nikki's family was told by police that the missing vehicle would have a lot of answers and they were determined to locate it. Ground searches led by volunteers continued well into September, but there was still no sign of the missing woman. Flyers with Nikki's face on them were put up all over Richmond by volunteers. Police Chief Bill Shake was stumped by the unusual nature of the case, saying that people just don't drop off the face of the earth. This case was the third daylight disappearance that Shake had worked on, but it was unique because there were absolutely no clues or leads to look into. The first major suspect in the case was Nikki's fiancé, Bobby. He was looked at mainly due to his behavior after Nikki disappeared. Despite reporting her missing almost immediately, Bobby did some things in the beginning of the investigation that many people believed were odd. In what Bobby claims was an attempt to get money for the search and to buy a cell phone, Bobby canceled the wedding and demanded a full refund from the reception hall instead of just postponing it. He called Nikki's school and asked for her unused tuition money back. He also attempted to return the wedding band that Nikki had bought him, but was unable to. When asked about his behavior, 13 investigates reported that Bobby said, I hadn't been to work in like two weeks, and I was just grabbing extra money that we had out there. He told Unsolved Mysteries that he was at the point where, quote, It doesn't matter right now. This wedding doesn't matter. Nikki's well being is what matters right now. Bobby had also taken and reportedly failed a polygraph exam. He had first refused to take it, but then he agreed. According to the operator of the polygraph test, Bobby failed a question in which he was asked if he had anything to do with Nikki's disappearance, and he said no. Bobby denies that he failed the exam and told Unsolved Mysteries that he and his attorney never saw the results of the polygraph. Eventually, interest in Bobby dropped, and investigators admitted that they didn't have any evidence connecting him to her disappearance. It's unclear when this happened because newspaper articles from the late 2000s still state that Bobby was a suspect. Nikki's sister, Tammy, she believes that Bobby is innocent, telling unsolved mysteries, There's no way he could do this. He'd have to be the devil himself to be able to walk around here, still see us face to face. You know what I mean? everybody has their limits. Nikki's mother, Barbara, however, wasn't entirely convinced of Bobby's innocence. She decided to keep Bobby close so that he would feel comfortable coming to her if he did have information about the disappearance. Bobby is adamant that he is innocent, telling unsolved mysteries. I don't know anything about Nikki's disappearance or whereabouts. I have nothing to do with it. I mean, I love Nikki more than I love myself. On July 31st, nine days after she went missing, a peace march was held in Richmond by Nikki's friends and family. This would be the first of what would be many marches and gatherings in order to draw attention to Nikki's case. On November 3rd, 2001, the break in the case that the McCowns had been praying for finally happened. Nikki's car was found in the parking lot at the Meadows of Catalpa Apartment Complex in Dayton, Ohio. 45 minutes away from her home in Richmond. The car was first noticed by police because a door was ajar. One of the door locks had been knocked in, the ignition had been tampered with, and the battery and stereo system were missing. The laundry that Nikki had been cleaning on July 22nd was still inside the vehicle. There were no fingerprints or other clues found on or near the car. And the Meadows of Catalpa was not just a random apartment complex in Dayton. Nikki's ex boyfriend, that would be Peyton's father, lived at the complex, and Nikki herself had lived there with him in 1997. Now, this ex boyfriend had an alibi for July 22nd, and he cooperated with the investigation, even giving DNA and fingerprints to the police while they continued their search. He was ruled out as a suspect. Investigators determined that the car had been at the complex for at least two weeks, but it wasn't paid much attention to by the residents. It was unclear if the car had been in the parking lot the entire time Nikki was missing or if it had recently been placed there. Nikki's father, Bud, he believed that someone had been driving the car around and moving it between different parking spots. He was adamant that somebody had to have seen something involving the car and possibly Nikki. Investigators were also interested in witnesses who saw Nikki's car being driven. A co-worker of Nikki's came forward and gave a reason for why Nikki might have driven the car to Dayton herself. She told investigators that she had talked to Nikki the day she went missing about beauty products that she could find in a store in Dayton. The store was located not too far from where the vehicle was found. A couple of items from the car were sent to a lab for DNA testing, but investigators did not have much hope that the results would give them anything they could work with and they were proven right because the car did not tell them anything new. Even with all these strange connections, the car was not the missing puzzle piece that investigators were hoping it would be. When the car was found, it brought with it the realization that there was no new information about what happened to Nikki or where she was. In December of 2001, Detective Roger Redmond told the Dayton Daily News, I don't think she is alive at this time. Nikki's sister, Michelle McCown-Luster, helped lead the fight for justice for Nikki. She told the Dayton Daily News in 2002 that having similar facial features to Nikki was hard to deal with. Quote, We look just like twins. You see me, you see her. I go into stores where missing flyers are hanging up, and people take them down and say, Is that you? That makes me feel even worse. My best friend is out there somewhere, and she needs me. Michelle also told the newspaper that Nikki's daughter, Peyton, had been struggling since her mom disappeared. She moved in with the McCown family, but her grades dropped and the family found it hard to explain her mother's disappearance to the child. The McCown family's efforts to find Nikki included contacting the FBI, America's Most Wanted, President Bush, and every senator they could think of for help. In July of 2002, Detective Sheikh told the Palladium Item newspaper that police were focused on two individuals who worked with Nikki at the Montgomery Education and Pre-Release Center, but he did not reveal any further information about the individuals. Even as the investigation stalled, the McCown family still fought to spread word of Nikki's case across the country. They repeatedly reached out to major talk shows and investigation shows, and some of their efforts were successful. In the fall of 2002, a year after Nikki went missing, Unsolved Mysteries aired an episode on her. In 2010, Investigation Discoveries Disappeared featured an episode on Nikki in its second season. Both shows traveled to Richmond and interviewed Nikki's family and friends and investigators involved in the case. In May of 2003, the McCown family held a press conference to remind people of the case, and to ask people to come forward with any information they may have. Detective Roger Redmond said at the time that the investigation had stalled out, but that a lot of progress had been made in the almost two years since Nikki went missing. A month before the two-year anniversary of Nikki's disappearance, the Carol Sund slash Carrington Memorial Reward Foundation offered a $5,000 reward for any helpful information about Nikki's case. The Memorial Foundation is based in California and named in honor of Carol Sund, her teenage daughter Julie, and Julie's friend Silvina Piloso, who were kidnapped and killed from Yosemite National Park in 1999. Reward money led to a conclusion in that case, which is why the Foundation offers rewards to other families with the hope that more cases will be solved. The Foundation's efforts have led to arrests of 19 suspects in five different states. In the years after Nikki's disappearance, her family had to cope with her being gone, but also with the repeated hope of closure that finding skeletal remains brought. There were several skeletal remains found in the Richmond area, and the McCowns and the police tested them, but none of them were a match for Nikki. In October 2003, skeletal remains were found in Owen County, Indiana. The remains were determined to belong to a five foot five African American woman who had broken her nose at some point in her life. These remains were recovered from a wooded area near Spencer, Indiana. It was determined that the victim had been between 30 and 45 years old and had been dead for 18 months to 3 years. Bones had previously been found in Morgan County in March of 2003, and the McCown sent information about Nikki to the Morgan County Sheriff to see if the bones belonged to Nikki, but nothing came of it. New remains were found in 2004, and the McCown family once again sent off information about Nikki, but the remains were not hers. In early November 2006, it was announced that the reward for information about Nikki's disappearance was increased to $100,000. The reward was offered by a Philadelphia businessman, Joe Mamana, and was set to expire on November 24, 2006. Unfortunately, the deadline came and went without any new leads. The new reward money brought more attention to her case, and that same month, a film crew from Geraldo at Large, a.k.a. Geraldo Rivera, visited Richmond to collect footage to be used on the show. And an important note to make when discussing the case of Nikki McCown is how it was reported. Nikki's case got a lot of media attention in Richmond and in Dayton, Ohio, because those were the areas that she was from. However, national coverage of her case was severely lacking, especially when compared to cases of other missing women at the time. Nikki vanished about the same time as Lacey Peterson and Chandra Levy two cases that got massive national media attention. In an article for the Dayton Daily News that discussed Nikki's case, a man named Roy Peter Clark was quoted about why Nikki's case got less attention than Lacey's and Chandra's. Clark is the vice president of the Pointer Institute and said that, quote, It's better to be white, a young woman, and middle to upper class if you disappear, and want to get and sustain national media coverage over the long run. Even though Nikki's case was featured on a few television programs, it still lacked the coverage that missing white women from middle, upper-class families receive. Nikki's sister Tammy told the Dayton Daily News that they tried to get Nikki's case to Oprah and to John Walsh, but that the shows turned down their request. After years of a slow-moving investigation, 2007 brought some hope for a breakthrough and closure. Toward the end of 2007, a man named Tommy Swint from the Dayton, Ohio suburb of Trotwood was identified publicly as a suspect in Nikki's disappearance. Tommy worked as a corrections officer and a security guard at the Montgomery Education and Pre-Release Center in Dayton. This is the same prison Nikki worked at. Nikki's sister Michelle revealed that Tommy had given Nikki money and that Nikki viewed him as a big brother. She also told the Dayton Daily News that Tommy had been a suspect from the very start of the investigation. But just who was this person who had allegedly been a suspect from the very beginning? Tommy Swint was born in 1966 in Chambers County, Alabama. He described his childhood as one filled with racism and a lack of paternal love. But he also claimed that he was a celebrity at his high school because of his status as a sports star. In 1986, Tommy joined the Marine Corps and was stationed in Japan and Panama, but was discharged under less than honorable conditions for going AWOL and returning to Dayton, Ohio to stay with relatives. He was eventually arrested and taken to base in North Carolina in 1990. After his discharge, he returned to Dayton. Once there, he married a woman named Lisa. According to Tommy, he volunteered at homeless shelters and boys and girls clubs and spoke at high schools about self-esteem. While he did not have a criminal record, he did have several civil judgments against him for not paying bills and committing traffic violations. The summer of 2007 flipped the entire investigation on its head when Tommy got a job as a police officer in Trotwood, Ohio. Less than two months later, he was forced to resign because he failed to tell the department that he was considered a suspect in Nikki's disappearance. These events led to Tommy's name being released in the media as a suspect in Nikki's case. There was a bit of confusion in the media reporting about what Tommy knew and what he told the police department. Tommy claimed he didn't know he was a suspect, but investigators in the case said he absolutely knew he was a suspect because he'd been interviewed multiple times and was asked to take a polygraph. Speaking about Tommy's time on the police force, Trotwood Public Safety Director Mike Etter said that the only way the city would have known about Tommy being a suspect in Nikki's case is if Tommy had told them. Edder told the Dayton Daily News that the police department does, quote, extensive background checks on potential officers, and because Tommy hadn't been charged in the case, nothing came up. Another puzzling aspect of this case is the exact relationship between Nikki and Tommy. Richmond Police Chief Chris Wolski believed that Nikki and Tommy could have had a relationship or that they wanted to start a relationship. This was backed up by Michelle, who some sources report as claiming that Nikki and Tommy were having an affair. Those sources report that Michelle came forward and revealed that on the day Nikki disappeared, Nikki had tried to call her multiple times. Michelle believed that she wanted to talk about an affair she was having with Tommy. There was something going on with Nikki, and she wanted to tell someone, Michelle told 13 Investigates. Michelle said that she had warned Nikki against the relationship and encouraged her to end it, telling 13 Investigates, I kept telling her, I don't know how many times I told my sister, quit taking from this man, and now she's missing and he's a person of interest. When asked about Tommy, Michelle told WDTN 2 News, he was a womanizer. He was very controlling. No matter what Nikki's relationship to Tommy was, he was a suspect in her disappearance, and by 2007, everyone knew it. In 2008, Tommy sued the Dayton Daily News, the Palladium Item, two reporters associated with the newspapers, and several members of law enforcement for defamation. He claimed that the defendants in the case, meaning the newspapers and the police officers, made false statements about him in connection with Nikki's disappearance. In August 2008, Tommy dropped the lawsuit against the palladium item and some of the police officers. And in 2009, a judge dismissed the lawsuit against the Dayton Daily News and the rest of the officers. After the public announcement of Tommy's name in 2007, Nikki's case once again went quiet. But as her case got colder, another case was heating up. In December 1991, 33-year-old Tina Marie Ivory was found beaten and strangled to death in Dayton, Ohio. She'd been wrapped in a blanket that had been taped around her body. She was naked from the waist down, and her body was inside of two plastic trash bags, one over her legs and the other over her head and torso. Two other women were found dead the same week Tina was killed. All three women were African-American, sex workers, and they were found beaten in the head. Authorities scrambled to find connections between the murders, but they ultimately did not believe the cases were connected. For 16 years, there were no suspects in Tina's murder, but in 2007, Dayton police got a tip telling them to look at Tommy Swint. One of Tommy's ex-girlfriends was interviewed by police in 2008, and she stated, that Tina and Tommy used to date. In the same interview, she said Tommy kept a blanket in his car that looked like the one Tina's body was wrapped in. A blanket in the house that the girlfriend lived in also went missing about the same time, and witnesses identified the blanket from the crime scene as looking similar to the missing blanket. Antonia Starr, another ex-girlfriend of Tommy's, told the Dayton Daily News that Tommy had threatened to kill her, her mother, and her son. The couple had started dating in 1996, and they had a daughter together. In 1998, Antonia got a temporary restraining order against Tommy due to the death threat. She told detectives that she had never met Tina, but that she believed Tommy was capable of murder. DNA was taken from six different points at the crime scene. Four of those points came from semen stains on the back of Tina's jacket, one from a semen stain on the front of the jacket, and the last came from blood on the blanket. Tommy was identified as matching the semen stains on the back of the jacket and as being a possible match for the blood stain. Two fingerprints found on the tape around Tina's body were also matched to Tommy. With this new DNA evidence, investigators visited Tommy's home, but when shown a picture of Tina and the blanket, he denied seeing the blanket or ever knowing Tina. When he was questioned for a second time months later, he again denied killing Tina. A DNA match for Tommy was discovered in November 2009, and police were able to indict him in February 2010. On February 3rd, Tommy was indicted by a grand jury, and police went to his house to arrest him. As officers approached his Phoenix City, Alabama house, Tommy shot himself in the head and was dead when police got to him. WDTN News 2 reported that Dayton Police Detective Patty Tackett said, We knew that beyond a reasonable doubt, we knew for sure we had our right person. Were other states looking at him on possible missing cases and possible similar type cases with women? Yes, they were. Yes, they were. The death of Tommy Swint put major breaks on the investigation into Nikki's disappearance. Another detective on the case, Detective Michelle Miller, believes that Tommy was responsible for Nikki's disappearance. I'm 99% that he is involved in her disappearance. Not having him here does make it hard to find physical evidence, and without physical evidence, it's hard to prove a crime happened, she told WDTN 2 News. Even after the standstill that Tommy's death brought, the McCown family isn't giving up hope, and they work hard to keep Nikki's case active. Nikki's sister, Tammy, still believes that Tommy is a person of interest in the case, and she's glad that Tina's family finally has some sort of closure. Michelle promises to keep fighting for her sister. I don't plan to give up. I will see this through. Nikki will have justice. In 2010, Nikki's mother told 13 Investigates, I just want her home. And if they've taken her and did something with her they ain't got to confess, just tell me where they laid her just tell me where she's at. In 2018, for an interview with WDTN 2 News, Nikki's daughter Peyton said, I wish more than anything that she could be here with us, but this is my reality now, and I've got to push forward and do what I can to keep my mom's memory alive. Peyton is now a mother herself. She has a six-year-old daughter named Nicolette in honor of her mother. Over the 21 years that Nikki has been missing, the McCown family has held several vigils and marches in Nikki's honor in order to bring attention to her case. They often hold their events at the Richmond Coin Laundry, the last place that Nikki was seen. In July of 2020, one day before the 19th anniversary of Nikki's disappearance, Nikki's mother Barbara passed away. Nikki's father passed away back in 2004 neither one of them ever learned what became of their youngest child. In an article in the Palladium Item about the 20th anniversary of Nikki's disappearance, Peyton spoke about the loss she felt losing her grandmother. Losing her was very, very hard on me. She was my best friend. I miss her every day, just like I miss my mom every day. Peyton picked up the torch from her aunts and is determined to find answers about her mother. Especially after the passing of her grandmother. My grandma had to be laid to rest without knowing what happened to her daughter, and I made her a promise that I would do everything I could to bring those answers home. After Tommy Swint's death, there were no new breaks in Nikki's case. Nikki McCown is still missing. When last seen, she stood five foot two and weighed one hundred fifteen pounds. She had light brown hair, brown eyes, and small scars above her left eye. And on the right side of her face, as well as a scar on the top of her head and a large scar on her left lower leg. If you have information about the disappearance of Nikki McCown, please call the Richmond Police Department at 765 983 7247. And listeners, I'm recording this on election day, and I wanted to bring up advertising because I've gotten some feedback about political advertising on the podcast. I do not run political ads ever. I choose ads that I speak, that I read out loud. Those are ads that I selected and agreed to do, like for BetterHelp or some of the feed drops that you hear. But if you hear an ad that's a drop-in, like at the beginning of the podcast before the episode begins, my hosting platform chooses those and I tell them no political ads. But sometimes the political ads sneak in and it makes me very angry. In fact, it pisses me off because I'm interested in politics, but I need a break from it. And I don't want politics sneaking into my non-politic time. So if you hear a political ad, I'm sorry, I didn't choose it. I didn't run it. I don't endorse it. It's not something that I would run on the podcast. In the weeks ahead, you're going to hear another feed drop and the holidays are coming up. So I've got a holiday themed episode that's really dark. Um, That's something for you to look forward to. And then I'm not sure if I'm taking a break this year, maybe taking off December 15th or January 1st. You'll probably find out about the same time that I make the decision. As always, I appreciate you listening. I appreciate your support of the podcast. And please be safe.